0: Welcome to the IS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Today, we are joined by Matthew O'Kane from Nexus Ventures. We discuss thematic investing, including how to find a theme and the pitfalls that may occur along the way. For those who like the details, Matthew goes really deep into a couple of examples. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you subscribe on all good podcast services, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we are joined by Matthew Kane, who is Managing Director at Nexus Ventures. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, very nice to be here.
0: We want to introduce you a little bit. So I think what we would like you to do is perhaps discuss or explain how you became an EIS fund manager.
1: So I've got my professional background for the first uh, 10 or so years of my career after. So after graduating from university, uh, I followed a reasonably well-trodden path for many people. I've qualified uh, as an ACA, so Chartered Accountant, uh, at one of the big four firms, so Price Waterhouse, PwC. And I spent uh, the first 10 years or so either in practice at at big four, so PwC, and later on uh, also at Deloitte a couple of years in the investment industry. And then I had an interesting uh, experience where for a year uh, back in 2012, 2013, I was invited to go and spend that year on secondment in the offices of a private equity firm called Bridgepoint, who um, many of your listeners may be familiar with. They're best known for a number of mid-market private equity holdings, one of which was particularly well-known, which was pret a So they were the lead, they were the owner of pret for many years until they sold it for quite a lot of money uh, about 18 months ago now. And um, anyway, long story short, I was then becoming more and more interested in investment from having spent time in that firm. Uh, I'm, I'm a tax specialist. And so EIS is something that actually brings together both of those professional interests of mine. In middle of 2013, I was invited to go and meet a chap called Harry Hyman, who's a very well-respected entrepreneur. He's founded a number of successful businesses, uh, particularly within the Nexus Group. And um, he has also led a, a healthcare investment fund all the way through from startup through to a member of the FTSE 250 um, with a market cap. Uh, as of last Friday, actually, uh, in the region of £2 billion. And so that is how I came to uh, personally become an EIS fund manager. I was invited to come and work with Harry to set up what's now uh, NIVL or Nexus Investment Ventures. And um, I've spent the last seven years or so uh, investing my capital and arranging investment on behalf of over 100 co-investors now and latterly uh, via a fund specialising in uh, EIS. So, as I said earlier on, bringing together the match of the taxation, which obviously EIS is a range of uh, tax incentives that exist, and then investment. Great.
0: And one of the things that makes Nexus a little distinctive, I think, is you have a sort of thematic focus. So, perhaps you could perhaps just tell us a little bit about what Nexus do in that respect
1: yeah sure okay so I mentioned that uh, there's a nexus group into which the invest- investment ventures arm sits and um, I mentioned primary health properties as a, as a big part of uh, what Harry Hyman's built mm. over the years so as I mentioned as well health investment uh, is uh, something that nexus is well known for as a group we manage a very large uh, real estate investment trust but we also have a publishing operation uh, which owns a a, a company called Investor Publishing, which itself is responsible for a number of titles, including Health Investor and Education Investor. So, the themes uh, that are inherent in both healthcare and education, and I'll, I'll come on to what I mean by themes in a second, have really been in the DNA of Nexus since Nexus was first founded by Harry himself back in 1994. And then, if you break down those particular themes, healthcare and education, You start to look at quite interesting things like uh, the ever-increasing ageing population in the UK and globally. Challenges in healthcare around the increase in obesity, but then other uh, diagnosable conditions like diabetes and so on and so forth. And so as the Nexus Group, stepping back from our EIS investments for a second, every day, Health Investor, okay, as a publication is reporting on news and investment activity and developments within the key themes of healthcare, education investors doing the same within the themes of education. Um, So those are why we talk about Nexus as perhaps a more thematic investor. There's the historical legacy, 26 years, okay, of sort of understanding much of what there is to know about those two areas. And then there's the more recent deeper dive thematics, which um, obviously we're going to talk a little bit more about today. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think a lot of people are aware of these sort of broad themes if you like where we all know aging population and the issues that it creates but I think what you've done a little bit as you say is you've gone deeper um, and I think it's that that's really interesting for from investment perspective but perhaps we may just think at a high level how do you kind of define thematic investing because it's one of these labels that's out there and probably some people think oh yeah i know what it is and other people think well i've heard it and i'm not so sure
1: okay uh, I'll, I'll do my best so um no, i just hasten to add i suppose I, I can't remember really one occasion in my time at nexus where we've necessarily sat down as a <laughs> as, as a group <laughs> or director's a board or anything and try to define it but here's how we understand it and i understand it we're looking at longer term trends okay that effectively go beyond sector interest uh, and we're looking at i suppose evolving and and evolving fashions to an extent but i don't want to you know underplay these are these are big macroeconomic trends okay and i've touched on one or two of them already and effectively, what we're looking to do is make micro investments in many senses of the word. OK, so I don't mean tiny investments. Uh, that's not the sole mean that I mean by micro. But I mean, at the end of the day, we're backing early stage companies and founding teams. So you know, there aren't many founding teams that have many more than three people when they're usually starting. And we're helping them to scale up. But um, a, a very well respected gentleman who very sadly actually lost his life recently during COVID-19, uh, a chap called Terry Mansfield, CBE, who um, was, I believe, the first ever non-American board member to be elected to the main board of the Hearst Corporation. And he knew, uh, I think, it was, was it Rand- Randolph Hearst, who was uh, one of the original founding fathers, if not the founding father of Hearst. He once said to me, and, and by the way, his, his um, relevance to this story is that he was for some years a board advisor, to Nexus and uh, and Harry Hyman ticking on publishing, he once said to me, "You do something very interesting, Matthew. You you're looking, uh, attempting to look over the mountain. Okay, you're t- attempting to peek over the mountain into the future, and then essentially what you're doing with your investments is you are you're giving those businesses that you believe have the capacity to do well once they've got over that mountain. You're giving them." The, the fuel and the uh, and the power to be able to get over okay those initial that that initial hurdle and those initial hurdles and in some ways that's also true in terms of thematics so by taking a thematic approach as we do okay big macro issues that I've already touched on and then drilling a little bit deeper into things like so I made a little list actually so what we started investing in all the way back in 2013 were businesses such as ones that are um, concerned with promoting personal data privacy okay here we are in 2020 or it's probably for about 12 to 20 months now i would say has been very much front and center uh, i see a lot of tech talks. talks on the topic of course but you know again try to look back to 2013 2014 probably a degree of clairvoyancy was required to be able to see that that was going to become a big theme in the future we picked that as a theme we wanted to support low sugar Nutrition, stroke free from foods, probably you could say for about five years has been increasingly uh, of interest and, and reportage. Again, go back seven or eight years, it was just a bit more nascent. Democratization of, of data and usage of data. So, this is slightly different from privacy. Um, we backed businesses, including one called iPushPool, that I'll touch about later. Remote working and schooling okay very pertinent and we're probably going to come on and talk a bit about that in due course and of course sort of distance learning distance medicine distance education so these are nice to talk about here we are in july 2020 of course but hopefully i've given you a flavor it's a it's got to wind the clock back a few years and think well who was thinking about these things in advance and we feel that we we have been for
0: quite some time. Well, that does naturally raise the question in terms of there are some themes that all sound very good now, but how do you actually sit down and say, right, we have this environment just now, and in five years or 10 years' time, which is really sort of investment horizons we're thinking about, there is this thing that is going to be relevant, and relevant in a way that probably isn't relevant now. So how how do you actually dig into the environment to figure out what the right themes are?
1: Yeah, yeah, great question. It is not something that I think one can, in pure sort of scientific terms, obviously, uh, necessarily sit down and and analyse simply through pure review. And I know that's probably, you know, sacrilege to say that in a world of, you know, uh, the wider investment sphere. Um, but I'll come back to why I think that's really interesting in our world of EIS and alternative investments and scale up.
0: Well, I think EIS in particular, there is a difficulty in systematizing things and, and venture capital probably as a whole. And I don't really see anybody who has done a pure, certainly pure systematic, there are people making attempts along these
1: lines. But I think systematically it's very hard. Well, I completely agree with that. Um, so we, what we do is, is, okay, it's kind of like a little three-point plan as to how to, I suppose, develop oneself as a, as a venture capital investor or manager. One is you've got to stay very well connected and you've got to try and go as wide as possible in your uh, connections. So that means uh, effectively keeping oneself out and, and as an investment firm, many people connected in well to uh, investment activity, uh, research activity, but also spending time talking to people, and it always astounds me how much, uh, how many weird and wonderful and very successful wings of commerce exist. Okay within let's say within london alone let alone within the southeast of england let alone within the uk let alone within europe let alone within the world and so on and keep expanding out so the first point is you've got to keep yourself as well connected uh, into activity and keep talking to people and listening and listening and listening and that starts to give you little hints and clues as to themes and so on and so forth second uh, of the three i would say and this is where I think it's more the traditional fund management approach, particularly in liquid entities, uh, liquid stocks, is, is obviously reading voraciously. So there are, uh, you know, an inordinate number of sources, uh, some more trusted than others. It's fair to say uh, of information that exists out there, both in the written form obviously books and magazines and newspapers. I think there's still I sort of fear a little bit for maybe the next one and a half generations younger than even myself in that you know there's so much bite-sized information out there now on the internet it's like forcing oneself to have the discipline to read longer deeper articles and traps uh, I think is is a good source and I think the third bit and this is you know very much it, it may sound trite to some people but actually one builds up this over time from just being active and investing back in one's judgment actually is a it, it's a form of talent spotting and, it, and it's a form of trusting one's antennae effectively to be well attuned to and this comes on to the other element of this which is you know people to back we i'll give you i'll give you a war story an example so Mm, we backed a business in about 2014 uh we backed a founder and his team he he previously built a business and had sold it for quite a lot of money to a reasonable amount of money as as a founder to defence firm called Lockheed Martin, he came onto our radar because he'd started a business that at the time was uh, amalgamating people's personal social media feeds. So think back 2013, 2014, many people had a Facebook feed, not everyone you could ever meet, but many people did. There was just a hint that Twitter was something that people also were potentially using as other social media, but there there weren't too many more. There were some, but there weren't too many more. Nexus, through Harry Hyman, had had a meeting with quite an eminent lawyer at a city law firm who was promoting an idea that the lawyer had had to start a business or or find someone who might be interested in starting a business to create a bank, metaphorical bank, of personal data. So to put it another way, and this was the starting point of this, think about the fact that even in those days, but certainly today in 2020, um, let's say old-fashioned wills and inheritance planning are just that. It's sort of old-fashioned in that one can keep a record of one's assets that are financial assets at the bank or asset manager or private bank or whatever it is that, you know, one has as one assets, one's houses, blah, blah, blah. Most people with one rather than plural, I hasten to add, but you can see yeah, we all understand about financial assets being the same for 50 or 100 years. But actually, we all of us through our online activity exponentially have been creating data assets over many, many years. I'll give you a simple example. If you have done an enormous amount of traveling in your recent career, you probably may have built up quite a lot of air miles. OK, in the sad event of one's demise those air miles, historically anyway, have sort of gone nowhere, excuse the kind of consistent but mixed puns, if you see what mixed metaphors, in that they sort of disappear off into the ether. Okay, so the law firm was talking to Harry and myself and Nexus about, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I think this is an interesting area of law, okay, because what one treats those assets as like an interesting legal question, uh, and these are the business bank. We then were separately connected in via a chap called Sir David Arceus, who's very well known uh, in publishing circles. He built up eMap over many years and had gone on the board of Pearson and Barcus and so on to this entrepreneur I talked about earlier who built his business, previously sold it to Lockheed Martin, who was developing this The business I explained is about social media assets. And essentially from that was born what's now known as DigiMe. And DigiMe is one of our portfolio companies. And that has moved miles miles beyond the sphere of social media feeds. Now what DigiBe does is it enables you to have essentially a one-shop, a one-stop shop, sorry, to um harness and aggregate and control all of one's personal data from banking to healthcare records to obviously small part social media, pretty much anything and everything. They work with the NHS in the UK. They're one of the methodologies that you can access your own personal um, healthcare data. They're trying to work with the Dutch government in a kind of a COVID track and trace response. They've worked with the Icelandic government. And I suppose the point that I'm making, perhaps in a slightly labor- laborious way, and I apologize, is I think I'm going around the house with stories. <laughs> Coming back to your question is, you know, how does one... How does one actually go about, you know, spotting and making thematic investment decisions and, and following them through? Hopefully, in my example there, I've kind of given two or three elements to what I was alluding to. One, we stayed close to other people who were doing interesting things in the area. Two, we'd read up on these sort of themes of and these ideas of personal data banks and so on. And third, we were backing talent of somebody who had actually effectively come up with a similar um, not identical, but similar business, who was already on that path, who was already had started something and was scaling up. We're back in their time.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting because when I think of themes, I think of somebody sitting almost in that little room, having read all your stuff and thinking, oh, yes, it's like the light bulb goes off and you say, oh, great, yes, I suddenly realized there's this area that is that is <laughs> going to be interesting. Uh, And maybe it's because you've read some technology and then you go and find the investments, but you make it sound like there's almost a chicken egg situation in terms of you start seeing perhaps some investments that might be interesting. And does that then provoke you to go and look for more related investments? Is Uh, that kind uh, of the
1: idea? yeah, to a certain extent. So, you know, there's a lot of thinking that's gone in in the first place. Uh, and as I explained, obviously, in my little soliloquy just now, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's an element of thinking around what other people are doing in the space. Um, but in answer to your question, there's a little bit of chicken and egg. At the end of the day, and I don't think there's enough of this in the early stage VC, VCT, EIS, you know, whatever you want to, however you want to break down the marketplace, it's ultimately comes down to private company equity investment okay, with an element of, you know, tax bridge that's built into it. And at the end of the day, it's like most things in life, one only actually truly learns and develops, okay, as a person and as an investor and as an investment house and so on, from putting into practice some of what you believe to be the case. And a big part of our view of thematic investment is that, you know, one may not be absolutely perfect in one's analysis you know on day one and it's only actually through the uh, process of going through some of the growing pains that businesses go through with our help and nurturing and so on and so forth that one starts to make better and more tested investment decisions and out of that certain themes start to solidify you know personal data privacy as you said earlier you know there's no doubt at all yeah, this is front and center of, of many, many, many areas of our kind of global debate within business and philosophy and so on and so forth at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's very
0: live, certainly track and trace, where we're seeing Apple and Google creating this interface, this API, which is very privacy-orientated than some countries coming back back to them and saying, well, actually, we'd like more central control and there's a real debate about who controls that data and what control people want governments to have over that data. And well, I mean, there's Facebook and all these sort of other issues
1: as well. But you know, come back to DigiMe. Me is a philosophically based business as well. Okay, it's entirely uh, predicated on the belief that the user, the individual is the best arbiter uh, of usage of one's own data. Yeah, it should be the ultimate you know, decision maker. That's a state of mind, and that's I suppose where what I mean in terms of some of the um, thematic decision making behind. behind you mentioned about fashions, and I was wondering
0: how do you avoid the worst of fads and fashions? I mean, certainly, I, I think the most prominent one recently has been probably artificial intelligence, where we've seen uh, for a while it is kind of like the second dot com or the fifth dot com or whatever, where <laughs> you just sort of said we're AI, you can release whatever you mean you like, and your valuation is twenty percent premium, whatever. But I suspect a lot of what people were seeing it was probably almost too late to get the, the real winners in, in one sense. And you must have that issue yourself where you sort of, you're sitting there, you look at something, you get a theme, then you suddenly realize either everybody's doing it or you're just too late. Or how, how do you avoid that?
1: Okay. Yeah, it's a great, great question. Well, the first thing is one's got to be humble, I suppose, to the fact that one may never entirely. True- truly and fully avoid it completely so we all have our own inherent you know biases built in but I think you touched on it earlier when we were chuckling it's kind of a it ends up becoming a game of almost buzzword bingo Brian and you know the moment that one starts to see uh well I always say is kind of first slide of the deck syndrome so we get you know hundreds of uh, prospective investment decks I tend to think, I tend to find it, you know, if if within the first three bullets of slide one, I've seen one of uh, artificial intelligence, let's say, or machine learning, VR, AR, and so on and so forth, I may be interested. But as soon as I've seen more than one of them in the first three bullets, then I'm probably my my scepticism rating jumps up quite highly. In answer to your question, I mean, anything that is a potentially quite, uh, uh, I suppose, popular trend that could end up evolving into a fad that you're better off avoiding there is that kind of moment when it's almost a um what's the word i'm looking for it's it's almost the weight of i'm gonna show my age again now it might seem a bit off track you remember in uh, old enough to, in the 1990s right there was a chap called neil morrissey who uh, went from you know never been on television to seemingly being on television every day of the week it's kind of that thing that we're talking He's about
0: behaving here. badly i think
1: in behaving badly in noel's house party Cracking. i mean noel Edmonds himself is probably, probably uh, in some ways an example and in answer to your question the point really is that there has to be a core principle behind a business itself for us to be interested in it so it may well be that there is an element of artificial intelligence okay that is genuinely baked into the technology of a company that is looking to do something really important in our view and meaningful in our view in a particular business line okay and if we believe that that business line is one that has commercial potential to to scale into a really you know, serious business of tomorrow, right? Ideally, beyond the UK and internationally. So, for example, some things that are done in the health tech space, where there is actually a we think a commercial need and 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 pull rather than a push, okay, for business and uh, its products to be bought at scale, and artificial intelligence is one of the drivers. That's absolutely fine, but uh, and we will we would probably back a business in that sphere. But if we feel that actually you've got clever people in search of a business plan, and therefore they're alluding to things like AI, but in a very generalized way that doesn't withstand due diligence or as to the technology being a blind, then that to us is a warning bell, and we probably wouldn't necessarily proceed too far with that particular business. And the other point is really around valuation. And you alluded to it. We pride ourselves, rightly or wrongly, so far our evidence over the last seven years has been that we are reasonably astute at uh, assessing sensible entry points. And I think another clue, perhaps, as to when something's a fad or a trend, and we we would we probably would back away from it slightly, is when you sort of find that a business or businesses are being perceived as cheap. Because the people that they're actually going to and talking to, particularly around sort of angel investment and family office sphere, have come from big company or big investment world. If you come from an investment world where you are weighing up in your day job, whether or not to make a 70 million investment or a 100 million investment, then you can kid yourself quite easily into thinking that making a 2 million investment at a 10 million valuation is early. Okay, And that you've got a long way still to go. But that's completely irrelevant if the particular business has not got the track record behind it that could ever support that. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of that. You can you can pick that out quite, quite commonly in the worlds that we look at. So in health tech and ed tech, you can see when people are effectively pushing a high valuation.
0: Mm-hmm. Which kind of leads on naturally, in a sense, to... Having avoided fad or fashion in the first place, how do you decide when a theme has kind of run its course? Because hopefully at some point it it does become that fad or fashion, hopefully a long lasting one if you're invested in it, but there will will be a point presumably where opportunities dry up or the the, the new companies are coming along or just like me too's or whatever. Um, How do you, how do you decide
1: Yeah, it's not straightforward. I think the me I think the me too is coming along is a big point. So if you look at, um, we, we made a few investments uh, into healthy food and drink businesses uh, and sort of free from food companies uh, and drink businesses. And I think, yeah, how do you decide? It comes back to similar to what I was saying before. In, when the sheer scale and volume of opportunities that are coming through our channels, if you see five businesses in a month that are all low-alcohol Right. These are all healthy, low alcohol, um, liquor businesses or other variations. Um, What it really tells you is the barriers to entry are tremendously low, is, is a great attraction to start with for people to spot something and get it up and moving. But quite quickly becomes unattractive to more seasoned venture capital investors. And then the second thing is, yeah, I'll come back to it. It's valuation creep. So, okay there are different schools of thought on this. But let's say that a business starting with no back, back, backing revenues, okay, no track record of revenues, but let's say two really bright, smart founders who come from professional backgrounds, they've built up businesses, they've grown PL, they have a clever idea they think could come turn one day into a £50 million pound company. And they, they tentatively push that they think their business might be on the first round of investment for £250,000, might be worth, you know, two million pounds, let's say, right? That's what they probably push for. And you go through the dance and you'll end up agreeing that at most, at at best, it might just a a bit of generosity of spirit be sort of 1.5 million, all right? Post money valuation at best, because you're saying, look, we've got to, at the end of the day, we're trying to grow companies over the long term. So okay, that would be sixteen point six percent dilution or thereabouts for the founders. It still gives them, you know, overall control. Blah blah blah. That that's that's not an unreasonable position, perhaps to it. If you believe, as an investor, you you actually think there is a roadmap to a fifty million pound company, because you're going to have all various investment rounds later, a dilution dilutive effect. You notice when something is probably best avoided in terms of fad and fashion, if the starting point, let's say, is one and a half to double that. So their starting point as founders would be, well, we really think we're two and a half to three million. And when you say, Well, look, there's various reasons here why I'm afraid I, we're not gonna we're not gonna agree, they then start pointing to X or Y, former decorated investment banker or former decorated government minister or whoever, who's agreed to give them a hundred thousand pounds at the asking price almost almost treating it like a retail like type operation that is a good real life example i suppose of when we would say i think on balance this is not an area that is going to be a wise time to invest into it okay it doesn't mean that the fad and the theme's gone for good of course of course and if you look at our portfolio if you spend time on our website you'll see uh, a number of businesses on there in the areas that i talked about earlier that are um, still going strong. They've kind of gone through the cycle of being in fad and fashion, and then they might have dropped out of it. But of course, it's to do with the timing of when one gets in that counts.
0: Yes, yes, yes. They've run the fad up from the investment phase, but that doesn't necessarily mean that sometimes the business itself will continue. There is, if they're in the right place, they could continue to grow. I don't think no sugar food or low
1: sugar food is going to disappear, certainly. Um, Uh, Yeah. No, I think that's fair. And then the the other debate, though, on that particular point, for example, would be: okay, sugar tax, okay, applied to fizzy drinks. Will that ever get applied to fruit? Okay, and you know, people who are really spend their lives blogging, and we could loosely say debating um, and <laughs> some might say waste it, <laughs> wasting an inordinate number of hours on social media arguing with each other what flaming in the better comes each other will tell you and i a hundred things that we can't even conceive of about the the nitty-gritty and the detail of nutritional worth on this versus the other but actually it's trying to step back and have that bigger picture isn't it it's almost it's, it's almost the humanities type approach rather than a pure science-based or rather than a pure arts driven approach it's, it's actually trying to step back and, and see the wider landscape. And I think that's, that's quite an important skill to be able to try and time things. Yeah.
0: And I guess that's kind of what the seams thing is in a general sense. So we're, we're sitting here. It's now kind of mid-July. We've had a, a little pandemic going on now for uh, most of the year. There's so many changes going on this week. I can't keep track of what's actually changing about what we're allowed or not allowed to do because Scotland's got its own things and and you, you down south, you have your own things as well. But obviously, it's had a big effect on our industry. And particularly, I was just wondering how this has kind of affected your perspective on thematic investing.
1: I suppose we feel that the Nexus Investments uh, operation and our scale-up fund uh, have in some ways been the beneficiaries of this, uh, what have we alluded to earlier, actually, which is you know, trying to peek and look into the future, look over that mountain, okay, as one approaches it. Um, clearly, there's been an enormous movement towards remote working. You and I are enjoying having this chat, not from our respective offices that our firms have spent money over the years building up, but from our respective homes in far flung parts of the country nothing to do with where our businesses are based we've seen uh, the experience that my daughters have gone through so i've got a nine year old and 11 year old daughter uh, they've been doing um, remote home learning uh, for the period from middle of april pretty much end of easter holidays through to the middle of june they're now both back at school but interestingly they are back at school but then doing microsoft team style learning in the school so they still get break time in their bubbles and you know playing with their friends but actually it's bizarre they're sat in a room the teacher's not in the room the teacher's in another room all the teachers are in a bubble separately so we've seen that movement there in the education space which is one of our areas ed tech and then obviously we all know about the health tech move so in terms of themes there's various analyses aren't there but it's i kind of subscribe to there's sort of been three years worth of change in the space of three months That feels about right. That is a threat, you could argue, to some of our businesses because actually big business, so corporations, global and similar, have had little choice but to embrace and really what they're doing is investing in technology. Uh, They may not be doing it in the way that you and I or people think of investment i.e. they're not thinking I'm going to go and buy that business or I think I'm going to go and invest 100 million or 50 million or 10 million into you know uh, building the equivalent of Free Market FX, one of our even Fin is one of our only FinTech investments, for example, they do a lot of stuff around data. That's not the sort of investment. It's the sort of investment that's probably going on in the, the room next door to me where my wife, who works for one of the big four firms, has her and her and something like 8,000 other people in their firm, give or take, are doing have to do a two-day course, uh sometime between now and the end of August, I think, uh, where they are sort of being shown umpteen ways that digitized technology could be used by each of them in the better provision of services to their clients so you know it's even down to the granular level of you know here's a piece of software that was invested in years ago by that big four firm uh you know you too can understand how this coding works that will facilitate a review of you know two hundred fifty thousand lines of a trial balance it's no longer that's given to the tech people They'll solve it. You know, you who are client facing, get on with your clients. It's it's now becoming integrated. So I think you've had this incredible change. I think there's a slight threat that comes from it, as I've alluded to. But at the same time, I'd like to think that a number of our investments that we've made, um, we've got much closer to the process where they become strategically interesting as trade acquisitions or trade investments for, for large corporates, because... There has been a huge amount of time and uh, what's the word innovation put into instances going back now. In our case, six or seven years sometimes. In other cases, seven to ten years. In terms of money going in, I think that valuations were toppy, generally in 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 business, in areas like SaaS, like software as a service. Um, platform companies that are helping things like marketing strategies or I, I would argue quite often are sort of nice-to-haves rather than need-to-haves. Valuations have been getting quite chunky pre-Covid and I'm seeing the impact to an extent of a recalibration of uh, valuation expectations but I wouldn't say we're seeing the full effect yet. So we're talking in July I think it's only when businesses that have been, they've almost, I, I've, I've, I just I've talked to one of my, so I'm on a board of boards of quite a few companies or advisory boards anyway. And I was telling one of them on Friday, I just can't wait to get them off what I would call the crack cocaine of almost annual, you know, investment top up rounds where they are, they are meeting various milestones. They're growing fast. They're potentially a huge, huge business. But, you know, it's almost become too easy and commonplace that, you know, pretty much every October or so in their case, you know, they talk to a mixture of new investors and existing investors and and they can rustle up some cash. I think that the day of reckoning is going to come maybe not this autumn uh, for that business, or lots of other businesses, but I would say by this time next year, what I mean by the day of reckoning is, you know, it, it will no longer be a uh, seller's market. I.e. Founder teams, boards, management teams aren't going to be holding more of the cards when it comes to negotiating potential investment that will, that many businesses need, because sadly or otherwise, I would think that 95% of businesses that come to us and to come to all of the, you know, we co-invest with a lot of the well-known EIS and VCT houses uh, that that you featured on, you know, on your podcast, the common names, I would think 95% or more of businesses who come to them have substantial cash burns and have been built on the basis that they will continue to have substantial cash burns for another, you know, let's say two, three years, break even something that's, you know, amazingly never quite get there in a lot of cases, that's the bit that I think over time will become unsustainable. And therefore, the gems are going to count. Uh, the gems are going to shine even more brightly. Uh, we've got an investment in a video clips company in education. So they, they sit in between, on the one hand, big publishers and big school chains and governments all over the world who, who are looking for digital assets to, to massively enhance the remote and online learning curriculums that they now are offering. And on the other hand, uh, sitting on the other side of that equation, are the video asset owners, so the Getty Images and uh the the BBCs even, you know, who who have all of this great content. I don't mean content that's created to teach. I mean content that's been filmed over the last hundred years, you know, important historical events it's and things library, like that. A library, A library, yeah. And um I think you know that sort of business was creating a category Back when it started, back six or so years ago, it was a category creator, and we were essentially sort of build it, and they will eventually come. That's a good example of where, over the last three months, I think you've seen three years worth of acceleration. Yeah, yeah,
0: I think I think it's complex. I mean, certainly we've seen acceleration of trends politically as well, good and bad. You know, and which is which depends maybe a bit on your perspective. But in business, I think you're right. Where anything we've seen ha- as a trend that's established has been accelerated with, with one or two exceptions. The valuation question, I think I'm more open-minded on it. I mm-hmm. still see I get the daily email from PitchBook, and I see a lot of PE people raising a lot of money. Now, that's a different space from which you and I are working, but I think that still has an effect in that there's still plenty of capital floating around in some parts of the private market. And I wonder if valuations are going to drop as much as some of us would like.
1: Maybe, but of course, okay. So you and I know, and many of your listeners will know, that if you pick up the Sunday newspaper or the Saturday newspaper and you read a wonderful story about how X or Y Inc., uh, based in, let's say, Silicon Valley, has just raised a £100 million Series F round. Uh-huh. I'll use the company at, you know, $2 billion or whatever it is, you and I and the people listening to this surely know that when we get those headlines, we we all know to take it with a massive dash of salt because we know there's liquidation preferences, priority shares, ratchets, warrants, uh, all sorts of fun and games that's actually sitting underneath that valuation that means that... Uh, kind of the moon has to come flying past on a stick in order for it to ever exit in the way that's described. It could exit for two billion, but it won't actually yield it in the way in the waterfall that you're looking at Let's believe. I'd like to think rightly or wrongly that you know where we're investing our time and energy and on behalf of our investors is sort of at the because it's at the earlier, not startup but the earlier scale up stage. Um, it's a slightly purer process in terms of you know if a company says if, if, sorry if the investors in a company get together and agree that it, people are going to invest a million quid at uh, seven million pre-money then there won't be too much if any let's call it mischief uh, woven into the valuation. So I suppose what I'm saying is it may be that valuations on the headline terms might be a bit more robust because you're what you're really saying is there may be some money that comes almost down the chain. Uh, from bigger, deeper pockets who go looking for what they consider to be bargaining. But I think one would probably have to take with a pinch of salt if one's looking at it as an ordinary shareholder, which most EIS investments would, you know, legally, but obviously there's nuances, as we all know. Um, anyway, so that's, that's what I think we might start to see.
0: I'm sure it's something we'll be debating over the next few months and year or two uh, quite avidly. So I'd like to move on to our standard questions. I'm going to throw some questions at you, and hopefully you can give um, reasonably um, on-point answers. So what is the most recent investment you made, and why did you make it?
1: Okay, so uh, we made an investment in June into an education technology company called P-I Pytop, P-I-T-O-P. P-I-T-O-P. Uh, so, PyTop is a uh, STEM hardware and software company. It's UK based, although it does a large amount of its business in the US and in other territories. And it essentially enables pupils in schools to um, design, code, make. So, effectively harmonize the use of robotics, okay, and then uh, coding stroke computer science. Uh, for the enhancement of pupils learning in those areas. And why did we invest into it? It's already a global business. I don't think they'd mind me saying that they've had one or two ups and downs. Perhaps if you look back over the last two year period, it had grown very quickly. It had then had to retrench a little bit. But um, some people know that we're investors in a couple of quite successful edtech businesses. We've had a partial exit from one at about 4.7x, not a million years ago we've invested because we think that this company has turned a corner and has the potential to go on to be that 50 million pound plus company that I alluded to earlier.
0: So in the eternal VC triumvirate of market product and management, which one's the most important?
1: Oh, I don't think it's a cheat. I mean, management, I always say we don't really invest in management teams because we are always investing in founder led businesses That's our philosophy, Brian. So I suppose, you know, founding team is, in my view, the most important. Why is that? Because at this particular stage in investment that we make investments at, at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to the grit, the willpower, uh, the skills, uh, what's the word, the gravitas, the charisma, the ability of the founders to drag this business with our help out of the foothills okay and up up into the mountains where the interesting things happen tell us about
0: a time that something went wrong for you and what did you learn from it uh,
1: we had a very good investment which has proven to be good in the long term but went through a bit of a wobble where we had we had a, a someone on the founder team or the founders didn't quite get there, as they didn't gel together and so someone left. So someone left during the um, early, uh, to the initial vesting period. So although that person uh, had to give back some of their shares and did so, and so all proper procedure was followed, uh, the learning point really was that in reality what had seemed at the time to be a decent time period of vesting which had been kind of negotiated and agreed in conjunction with the uh, lawyers on the deal, based on other uh, evidence and experience at the time, with hindsight was not a sufficient, perhaps should have been an extra year or more vesting. And the reason is that unlike another business that we'd uh, compared it to, this is many years ago, the other business that had agreed a vesting period the same actually had developed a product that they were now literally launching into the market. The one where one of the founders left and then had to give some shares back, and it led to some challenging uh, experiences over the subsequent year with motivation for others and so on. Actually, they they didn't really get the product as a minimum viable product developed until about a year into the cycle. So the learning point is how it was paying greater attention to just what constitutes a minimal viable product when looking at vesting terms for. Okay, that's an interesting interaction because you, it's not something you would naturally link. But it's only, and this comes back to the greatest learnings are from actually putting your capital into work and actually attending board meetings and seeing and understanding how dynamics evolve in, in the real world. Um, you know, founders, of, a bit off the I know you want to do these quick questions, but, you know, <laughs> I would say founders have to have a small part of self-delusion yes. built into their makeup. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to avoid, actually, as far as possible, the ones who unintentionally sometimes and good-naturedly are sort of, you know, in the realm of fantasists. And you you are absolutely looking to avoid the fantasists or the ones who are trying to live up to some sort of self perspective that's actually been sort of placed onto them. It's either occasionally you meet founders who you you sense what are doing it because they want to impress dad or, you know, they want to impress their cousin who's built up a brilliant business and has made loads of money or whatever it is. Those Mm. are not the right motivations necessarily. They're looking for something quite pure and it's quite difficult to define that always but we, sort of, we know when we see it.
0: So the EIS industry is far from perfect. Um, what would you like to change about it?
1: I'd like to see an ability uh, for uh, someone who holds an EIS share or EIS shares to be able to sell those EIS shares and for the recipient to effectively be given a smaller amount of EIS relief on the way in that will be given up by the seller. So in simple terms, if I had spent 10,000 pounds on some EIS shares, so I got 3,000 pounds relief, 30%, and I was then to sell them to someone who would be an EIS qualifying investor, but it's a secondary uh, deal now, I'd like to have a system where I could elect as the seller to give up, let's say maybe 7.5% of my original income tax relief and effectively pass that relief onto the buyer And I think by something like that, you would just start to create much more of a vibrant secondary market in EIS shares.
0: That's that's an interesting idea. We can throw that up to the government if you like. I'm an avid reader. In lockdown, I've been going through myriads of books. I read a whole book yesterday. Tell us something that you you recently read or something that you would recommend uh, as fun reading or interesting reading.
1: Yeah, OK, fair enough. So you, you phrased the question in a slightly different way to the way that I'm thinking about it. So um, I'll tell you what I've recently read and then I'll tell you the book that I would recommend someone. So I, pre- I, I read a book yesterday, yesterday, Saturday and yesterday, which was uh, a, the history of uh, Dexy's Midnight Runners, Searching <laughs> for the Young Soul Rebels, which is a very, very interesting book for anyone who has fascination with music and musical fashions and themes. Because I think they're the only group who pretty much had, have only ever done four records, four albums, and each one was a different style with a different look, okay, and with an entirely different range of songs. And I, I challenge anyone to think of any band that have had massive success with each of those uh, styles and looks and so on, but then effectively killed it off and went away and reinvented it. So that was something I've just finished reading. A book that I would recommend to people who are interested in the uh, investment early stage AI space is a book called The Second Bounce of the Ball by uh, Ronald Cohen, who was one of the founders of Apex, who are uh, now obviously an enormous private equity fund firm, but he started making early stage investments that's how his business started all those decades ago and it's um by quite some distance a book that i've got most sort of pleasure but also inspiration from at times over the years and coincidentally i couldn't believe it actually when i read the times this morning i was looking out for jack charlton's victory uh because uh, we've been, been mentioned by uh, someone at our work uh, It's worth having a read of and a tiny little sidebar in the business section uh, said sort of Ronald Cohen, and he was—he was—it was a tiny little article where he's uh, sort of campaigning for a couple of things to happen again now to re- stimulate investment. So second bounce of the ball by um, Ronnie Cohen. It's a guide to early stage entrepreneurship and investment.
0: Well, that's a new one to me, so I shall look that up. What do you wish you knew when you started with Nexus that you know now?
1: I think I probably wished I'd known how much or a better known what I personally find to be kind of a, a bit of a, a sad side effect of kind of investment world, investment landscape, which is that for whatever reason, often bigger is perceived in almost every case as somehow must by definition be better. And so if, you, you, if you're you part of making an investment of, you know, 100,000 pounds into a business and it grows 10 times, that is massive outperformance compared to probably 98% of any investments in any assets any time, you know, and then if you throw in tax relief on top and EIS, you know, that's fantastic return. But there is still, a, sadly, kind of a sort of, certainly in the UK anyway, sort of a, that's nice, but I've got a 50 million VCT, so, you know, what are you doing in you know, playing around with those small investments there? And I, I'd like, I suppose looking at it another time one thing i would have liked to have known was that people don't seem to pay so much attention to pure performance as what i might like them to Uh, because i think that's kind of the true test is what can you do with the resources that are available to you as an investor and and what can you do in terms of multipliers to me that's the real skill and that's just on, rather than i had a bigger pot in the first place so i increased it by you know 0.2 0.2 percent but because i started with such a big pot, that's produced a bigger overall return than so yeah, That that's probably the thing that i'd say
0: okay yeah yeah the, the marketing perspective in this industry is, is interesting at times um thank you very much for coming onto to the
1: podcast matthew yeah it's been an absolute pleasure brian thank you for putting up with my soliloquies but i hope maybe one or two little nuggets were in there for people to have enjoyed if people
0: want to find out more about what you're doing at nexus how can they get in touch with you
1: Okay, so they can either email Matthew O'Kane and Matthew.O'Kane and nexusgroup.co.uk. And we have two websites. One has all of our portfolio, www.nivl.co.uk. And the other website has details of our scale-up fund, which we've been operating for about 18 months. It has monthly closes. It only does data, education tech and healthcare tech investments. Three themes that we've touched on today. And you can get information on that at www.scaleupfund.co.uk. Also, give me a call. My details are widely available on the internet. We're always happy to have a discussion.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. So we
0: hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.